This is the second of our series of stem cell podcast episodes from ISSCR 2020. This time we're talking to Dr. Christy Redhorse. Just a quick heads up, we experienced a bit of audio trouble in today's episode with Christy Redhorse. There was some choppiness. Uh, apologies on that. And uh, we hope that it won't detract from the content of the interview. Christy was delightful. We think you'll enjoy it in spite of those technical difficulties. But again, our apologies. Hey, everybody, this is Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. As you know, Arun and I attended the 2020 ISSCR virtual meeting that took place at the end of June. To help keep you all up to date with the research presented at the meeting, we released daily YouTube videos summarizing all the talks we attended each and every day. If you're interested in a recap of the meeting, you can watch these videos at www.stemcellpodcast.com slash ISSCR 2020. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Christy Redhorse from Stanford University. She's on the podcast to talk about her research that she presented at this year's ISSCR conference. She uses developmental biology to inform coronary artery development. But before we get to that... Did you know that you can model arrhythmias and cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited HPSC lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com cardio webinar to learn more. All right, you guys. For this, our episode two in the series of interviews that we did based on the ISSCR, we have with us today, Dr. Christy Redhorse, who's Associate Professor of Biology and member of the Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine at Stanford University. The focus of Dr. Redhorse's lab is to fate map the different cellular sources that give rise to the coronary arteries of the heart and to identify the molecules that direct their migration and differentiation. Her lab wants to use this information to better understand and treat cardiovascular diseases. Christy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's our pleasure to have you. The first question, you know, our audience here and Arun and I, we're not naive to the healthcare burden of cardiovascular disease. So we can skip the st statistics, but to orient the listeners, What's your specific angle on the heart? We just talked to Benoit last episode from the Gladstone Institute, and he said that scientific inquiry there is totally unlimited, apart from one guiding tenet, that is, that the endpoint pretty much has to be clinical. You know, it has to be focused on disease. Um, would you say the same thing holds for you, your lab, or your institute? Um, actually, no. So I'm in the Department of Biology, and so I'm surrounded by people, and uh, our department has a motto or a guiding principles where we want to focus on basic mechanisms. And we want to keep uh, that part of research that uh, thinks basic mechanisms are really, really important, right? And so half of our thinking is directed in that manner. So I want to be... Uh, very clear with all of my trainees how important that is. But then on the other side, uh, of course, every scientist wants to make uh, discoveries that could somehow affect human health in a positive way. 
And it's not only uh, me, but also that attracts trainees. So when trainees are young and they're coming in and they're deciding which lab they want to uh, do their work in, whether it's a postdoc or their PhD, uh, they feel uh, internally excited by the fact that what they're studying could be uh, relevant to human disease later on. And so I really try to tell my trainees in my lab that you need to go to that bacteria uh, bacteria talk. You need to go to that talk on evolution. Um, you need to go to the talk so you can bring these basic mechanisms into your work and into your mind so that you can uh, enrich uh, the ability to make discoveries so that you can uh, one day maybe contribute to human disease. So Christy, let's talk a little bit about some of that basic science. The um Collaborate uh, the collateral coronary artery formation that you actually presented at ISSER this year was, was so fascinating, right? And collateralization is the coronary artery network can form new branches to get around a, a blocked artery, for example, in the cases of hypoxia. So we've got to ask you a little bit more about this just because it was so cool. So in particular, some of the evolutionary aspects that you talked about, right? You mentioned that the gu guinea pig heart is fully collateralized, perhaps due to the fact that its natural habitat is the Andes Mountains, where oxygen is low, right? So do you think this hypoxic collateralization is conserved across other species too? And do you think there might be populations of people, like those people living in high altitudes, who are resistant to MI because their hearts are more collateralized? So talk about the evolutionary aspects of this collateralization. Right. So we are very excited in going in this direction. Um, although it's not my expertise, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but luckily I'm in the biology department mm -hmm. and half of us is cell and molecular biology and organismal biology, and half of us are eco-evo, uh, so ecology and evolution. So I have close colleagues that I can uh, interact with. Um, but uh, so thinking about evolutionary, that's really interesting, right? And so it would be great to do some human genetics. Um, it hasn't been done. Of course, because even looking at collaterals in uh, humans is not something that uh, is, is easy to image. And so I don't think you could just go, it would be hard to go into a population in the Andes and, and look at their hearts and also uh, take their DNA. But I hope someday we would be able to do that to answer some of those questions. Um, so there's a lot of confounding if you just look at rates of heart disease in different populations, there's a lot of confounding factors there, right? Because they probably will eat a lot different than and we do. And uh, so in those types of studies, we would get all the different details. All right. Which I'm would be really fun, and I hope we can do someday. Um, as far as the, the animals, um, so... One thing that we would love to do, and now we can do just like we uh, went in and imaged the guinea pig to look at these collaterals. So now we can think of other animals that have evolved in the same types of environments and try to get our hands on those and uh, image them. Their stats for collaterals. And so that is something I would be very excited to support in my lab. So, yeah, I want to step a little bit into the teleological realm, which I know is anathema to many scientists, but bear with me here. So this, is, this starts with science. Your paper uh, 
about a year ago in Cell, I think it was. It really nicely revealed the novel way in, in which uh, neonatal mice hearts uh, mobilize arteries along like this capillary trajectory in, in the context of injury. Um, and we're talking about guinea pigs. They have this developmental collateralization, but do adult guinea pigs retain gener regenerative capacity along a collateral trajectory like neonatal mice? I'm guessing not. Um, but back to the teleological, uh, or do any, while we're talking about do any, I mean, we talk about how it's lost in mammals, right? This ability to regenerate your heart, with, what's present mm -hmm. in fish. But do we know that for sure? I mean, guinea pigs have collaterals in development. Maybe is there any mammal out there that might have collaterals? I don't know. Um, but the teleological issue here is why, why is it lost? I know this is a, a lot of people have talked about it. Um, why is it retained in zebrafish? Is it a matter of scale or some people talk about like the, the blood pressure or something? Um, do you have any, any thoughts that you can share with us about that? Well, so there are different capacities and different amounts of uh, loss in different cell types. And so we know that the cardiomyocytes, which are the main cell type that we need to be regenerated, we know a lot about those and how their capacity to proliferate and regenerate is lost. And of course, uh, a lot of this has to do with expression of cell cycle genes and um, as well as nuclei nucleation, binucleation and multinucleation. Um, and so that's what was surprising about our study is that it looks like the the endothelial cells, which we typically think the endothelial cells can mobilize grow a new vasculature throughout the life of an organism. Even though we know with aging, it's probably not as robust because, you know, with aging, many things are not as robust. Those cells have proliferated and lived and uh, acquired mutations or insults uh, throughout the life of the organism, which probably affects the DNA, right, and affects the regenerative capacity. But in our mind, we thought, well, a vasculature grows if VEGF is there whether the animal is a neonate or an older stage. Um, so the surprise was that they seem to have, even in their endothelial compartment, different regenerative capacities. Hmm. Um, we don't know the reason why. I suspect their chromatin is at the heart of this, right? So their chromatin, as you get older and are exposed to different environments or just the aging process, of getting older uh, packs your chromatin in a way that you can't as easily get out and change fates and um, proliferate. Because the key to our study was that those artery cells changed fate. They went from arteries, which do not proliferate and expand themselves. They de-differentiated back into a more a primitive like uh, capillary progenitor state. And then they were able to expand and then differentiate into the arteries. So uh, just along the same lines, I mean, I asked and answered, I get it with the cardiomyocytes and the binucleation, but getting back again, just repeating myself, apologies. But um, this idea, why, why would that capacity be lost? What's the downside there? Wouldn't it be nifty to have an adult heart that was able to respond and have the arteries de-differentiate and respond? I'm just kind of getting the teleological element of like, why not? Why would it be so uniformly lost? Why would nothing have evolved to maintain that capacity amongst mammals and the adult? Is there a downside to that? Well, there must be a reason. 
right? Because uh, evolution must have shaped it this way for a reason. Traits get lost and uh, gained and in a random way if there's not some reason to force uh, some trait to get um, propagated. And so there must be some reason, but we have to think about, so maybe the structure of the heart is so important. You can't have like a focus site of proliferation or maybe that will block a ventricle, for example, something like this. There has to be a downside. Hmm. Um, that's in thinking about cardiomyocytes, making the structure very um, amenable to heart function if there's proliferative patches. Um, but the vasculature, so we still know if there's a downside to laterals because uh, I've heard uh, someone talk about coronary steel, and that is when you have blood flow that doesn't go from the arteries, the capillaries, and the veins. When there's connections, there can be, because of pressure gradients, stealing blood flow mm. away. And so you don't want a bunch of arterial venous uh, malformations because then that just bypasses the capillary network. So if you have two collaterals, you might bypass, because of the way blood flow happens, the capillary uh, bed. So this is something we also want to study. So we're trying to, um, we're trying to model blood flow in these guinea pig hearts and see how the blood flow goes uh, to the capillaries and if it's any uh, worse or better when you have collaterals or not. So Christy, let's talk a little bit more about harnessing that process of angiogenesis. And you're a true developmental biologist, but you're working on a topic that has an unbelievable amount of translational potential. It's a dream scenario, but what if you could one day induce the formation of coronary arteries on demand, say for people with congestive heart failure or after an MI? And it's certainly kind of a pie in the sky possibility, but do you think we'll ever be able to get there? So as a thought experiment, mechanistically, what what, what are we going to have to understand and accomplish before we're able to actually generate coronary arteries or arteries in general on demand? Right. So I think, or at least in mice, we were already there. Um, so uh, we can uh, express some of these developmental programs in adult mice, and they will form new arteries. Uh, and we are still looking into it, but we think also uh, collateral. Um, it's a little bit harder to count in the heart because it's so large, but now that we can clear the organs and image an entire vascular network. We're making a lot of progress there. Um, but what I think the pathways are there. We're very good at, um, we're very good at understanding and discovering pathways to make a cell population differentiate in one way or the other. Um, we've heard that over the, the years at uh, this meeting um, many times with different cell populations. But what I think of is a huge step and as a developmental biologist, this feels so huge, is how do we deliver that to a human being? How do we pointedly get that particular gene in a safe way to those cell types that we want to convert to an artery, for example? And then they'll, they know what to do. They build an artery themselves. Um, and uh, But getting it there and drug delivery in a safe way seems like such a huge uh, step. So those are things that we're thinking about. And particularly 
one target is a transcription factor. And so how do we do that? We'll have to, to uh, if we can't find a pharmacological way of changing a transcription factor's function, uh, which is difficult, then we will have to do some sort of gene therapy. And we don't want to overexpress a gene if we get it into the heart forever. You know, you want to overexpress it just until it can make a few arteries. And so these seem like the hard problems right now. So speaking of that delivery, uh, going back to the neonate, I know there's a lot of groups, maybe not a lot, but some groups that are trying to identify the signaling or transcription factors that are present in the neonatal heart in the context of injury, um, and then kind of hack that cellular hierarchy in adults, right? And you were talking about delivery. I know there's this idea, the mod RNA-based um, delivery and indeed the cardiovascular application of VEGF uh, was one of the founding pillars of Moderna, you know, Ken Chen over there. Um, mm -hmm. And Karolinska now and Lior Zangi, they had that big paper, I'm sure you're aware. And then, of course, then there's this other like microRNA-199A about a year or so ago in the pig, I don't know if you remember that, that stimulated uncontrolled cardiac repair, it sounded really kind of scary. To your point about safety and delivery, it was like, <laughs> I think like it just, it supercharged the heart until like it, that you had a massive um, MI or something like that. So it didn't seem sustainable in humans. Um, but the point being is that there's all these uh, therapeutic approaches that seem to, you know, there's pro-angiogenic approaches, classic ones, just injecting proteins. Also, your approach seems to be very much about the vasculature and, and increasing angiogenesis there, um, or vasculogenesis, however you want to call it. But with all these ther therapeutic approaches, you were just at the ISSCR, which is a stem cell meeting. Where do you place cell-based uh, regeneration in this whole panoply? And have we kind of moved past the idea, or have we just realized that it's much further away um, than we expected? Or neither? Uh so I'm a big fan of the idea of cell-based therapy, and that seems to have worked to some extent in models with vascular cells. Um, I know it, uh, it's very difficult for cardiomyocytes, um, but we're hopeful. And that is also another big step that you point out is how do you get those cells to stay alive once you inject them? So with vascular cells, they migrate around and they find each other. This ability to de novo form cells, that's like what they're programmed to do, what they want to do. And so we're actually taking that approach in my lab is taking stem cell derived uh, artery cells in hopes that they're more like neonates because they're younger cells. And as we all know, iPS cell derived cells in general seem to be immature-ish. And so we're going, we're trying to put those into the heart to see if we can get a good result because those cells know what to do. They know how to novo form a vessel connected with each other. But I, I feel hopeful about that. But maybe because we haven't started those experiments yet, they're still in the planning phase. Talk to me in a year. <laughs> Will do. And so you're talking a little bit about some of the, the new technologies. Well, I guess not so new anymore when iPSCs, but in particular, single cell is something that's really revolutionized um, not only developmental biology, but, you know, translational stem cell biology, too. And it's something that your lab is doing a lot of 
days, um, it seems like we've all adapted single cell in some form or fashion over the last few years. So it's been useful because it's helped you figure out how the coronary arteries actually form and you're able to interrogate all the different unique endothelial and vascular cell types in the developing mouse heart at different stages. But what's next? So what else could you do with single cell technology to help take your lab's study of coronary artery development to the next level? Well, so what we're all doing now, and it's so useful and it's so accessible it's so like relatively cheap and easy, I'd say. I don't want to say cheap, but you know, relatively now these days. Um, we're using it to get an idea of what all of our mutant animals, uh, what exactly is happening to their cells. And so in the beginning, we just wanted to characterize the, uh, we just wanted to characterize the system, right? But now, not only do we want to characterize the system, we want to hone in on the very specific details that are wrong uh, with a mutation so you can really know what's going on. Um, and so that's kind of not the future, but the now, right now. It, this is uh, unpublished, but uh, this is how now we characterize our mutant animals uh, with different uh, deletions. And so, But in the future, is bringing me back to this comparative biology between the uh, different species that have collaterals and don't have collaterals. So comparative biology for a long time relied mostly on um, kind of, I guess, coarse analyses, histological analyses between different animals or uh, gross comparisons between organs. But now we have, because you can do single cell sequencing and know the details of all the different cells uh, in any animal who has a sequenced genome, then now we can take comparative biology to the single cell level. And so I think that's going to be key, right? Because what we would have done five years ago would have ground up, would have been to grind up the entire guinea pig heart, grind up the entire mouse heart and see what was differentially expressed. And so that would be very hard to dissect what's different too, right? But now if we take every single cell in both of those hearts and we sequence them and then we can put together like uh, uh, reconstruct the, um, the organ with uh, the knowledge of all the trans transcriptomes of all the cells and then compare them between the two, we can get a better understanding of what's different. Like just an easy example would be VEGF. So what if we find that VEGF is triggered to be expressed because these animals perhaps uh, evolved at high, elevate, high elevations, perhaps their trigger of expression of VEGF A uh, is lower. And so they express more in the cardiomyocytes than the cardiomyocytes signal to the endothelial cells. Or perhaps uh, they have an endothelial cell subpopulation that has a, a different capacity. So these are, we could really get at what's happening if you look at things on the single cell level. So I think in the future, that's really going to revolutionize our understanding. Yeah. So resolution works in, in both directions. Everyone's crazy about single cell and going down to the micro scale. Um, but then of course, you were also sending astronauts to space, right? On these private vehicles, go SpaceX. 
But um, just bringing it to the macro scale, you know, you zoom out to the macro. Where's your, your lab? I, I know you guys are, are intense on the micro and deconstructing and single cell and then reconstructing. So that's part of it. I guess you use that, that micro resolution to try and get a big picture, both at the organ level, also comparatively, evolutionarily. You've told us a little about that. But where does your lab fall on the macro end of the spectrum when it relates to like engineering? You've created the amazing capabilities for deconstructing the heart in the context of disease and mutants. But you're at an institute with uh, world-class engineering and surgical renown. Uh, do you dabble at all in uh, tissue engineering, organoids, stuff like that? Um, we're trying to start. Uh, so there's this idea whenever you talk to engineers uh, around. So I, I do have one student that's an engineering student, and, uh, and he is a PhD student. And his, I share him with Allison Marsden, who models blood flow. And so he's uh, computationally modeling blood flow with these different projects that I mentioned and in the mouse heart and in the heart, uh, hearts that have been uh, subjected to an MI, as well as um, maybe in the neonates, but hopefully maybe the guinea pig, if I can convince him or someone else to learn his techniques uh, from that. But one of the biggest and most exciting things in the future regarding engineering is try to watch in real time how the vasculature grows and also responds to injury. And so I don't know if you've heard about this, but have you heard about heart in a box? No, tell us. Uh, so this is something that has seemingly, from my perspective, very far away, kind of revol starting to maybe revolutionize transplants. And so they have created this uh, box to where they keep alive hearts and other organs by pumping blood through them. Mm -hmm. And so they can keep these organs alive for uh, 12 hours or more, 12 to 24 hours or more, uh, and that is increasing the ability to... Uh, distribute organs. And so this idea of keeping them alive just even a little bit longer is uh, allowing uh, organs to be able to be used when they weren't able to be used before. Mm. Um, and so that's huge for the transplant problem, right? Where the organ shortage is the main problem. But being inspired by that, we want to take that sort of technology where they're just hooking up the heart to all these tubes and uh, pumping blood through them to keep them alive. We want to put those that technology and uh, use it for the mouse heart so that we can uh, hook the mouse heart up and keep it uh, alive and then watch how mm. uh, the cells in real time are responding uh, to different stimuli that we can apply to them to see how, uh, so we can improve their injury response ultimately. So there's so much left to learn when it comes to the development of the heart, Christy, and you're on a personal note, your lab and your research was a huge reason as to why I decided to do my PhD at Stanford. And your lab was actually the first one that I rotated in when I was a first year grad student. So thank you for putting <laughs> but, it's my pleasure. Well, well, one of the first things I noticed, but even when I started in working in your lab, was your emphasis using absolutely beautiful confocal imaging to tell the story of heart development, right? In fact, um, 
I would say in your lab's case, a picture tells way more than a thousand words and beautiful images are always part of your lab's papers. And you have, you have access to your own confocal 24 seven too, which is a big plus. So why is there such an emphasis on this visual representation of developmental biology for your lab? Is it just about the best way to represent your science or is there an element of artistic appeal to it too? Well, there is an element of artistic appeal now that you mention it, because I initially when I was in high school, I thought I was going to try to be an artist. And then somehow, well, actually not somehow. And then I was in Miss Parnell's biology class. And then I was taken with biology for the rest of my life. But then I now get to be an artist as well, because the pictures that we try to make are also like art and they're trying to convey a message and also be uh, visually pleasing. Um, but I think you can understand whenever you think about, you know, yeah, like you said, a picture of a thousand words, really what's happening in the system when you can see, when you can see what's happening. And I was just talking about trying to uh, look at movies and time-lapse images of the heart responding to injury. And so a movie give you 10,000, it'd be worth 10,000 words, right? So... Uh, so the images have always been really, really important. The spatial localization of where things are, so what can tell you uh, who who those cells are next to, and then tell you then who maybe they're signaling relationships with, and it can help you understand it. Um, but since you have left, not only do we have our own confocal, now we have our own light microscope, wow. and so allows us to do what we were doing when you were in my lab now with the adult heart mm. so we're trying to go re- repeat all of that type of approach uh, in the injured heart injured adult heart because you know the confocals too doesn't have the ability to look through uh, the entire adult heart the heart adult heart's too big but with tissue and light sheet imaging you can do that so that's what we're doing now yeah the first I got with my startup was also a confocal, and I mean, I, a lot of people haze me about it, about how how I'm such a you know I'm so invested in in the pretty picture. But you know, they call it a cover image for. A reason. I know that's more about selling journals, but it also captures your attention, and uh, I think it, it forces interest. Right when you see the beauty of nature firsthand, you just have to ask questions. The curiosity just rises up in you. So I'm with you on that, Christy. Although I don't have my own light sheet yet. i got to work on that. Um, <laughs> so this has been uh, great. We're going to go a little bit peripheral now uh, from science. I'm going to ask just a question on the side here about uh, the best book, non-science book, that uh, you've read recently or are reading that you would recommend to our listeners. Uh, well, I, being here in Silicon Valley, maybe it's not such a surprise, but I just, yes, uh, Lisa Brennan Jobs's uh, memoir called Small Fry. Mm. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Have you read it? No, I haven't. I, haven't read it, no. I heard it was uh, a. <laughs> it was a really. It was. It was not the most flattering uh, portrait. Or am I wrong there? Tell us. But Dalen, life is not flattering. <laughs> Human interactions are not flattering. They're complicated and they're hard and. We don't always know what's happening and we don't always communicate perfectly. And also we're all stressed, especially 
is where we're very motivated and very ambitious. And it's not always easy to study these things that we can't see, right? That are happening at the, happening at the microscopic level. And so I find a very, very sweet uh, coming of age story. And Steve Jobs was, uh, you know, of course he was a, a player in, in that story, but uh, it really affected me and I really enjoyed it uh, on a personal level first because uh, I grew up with my mom and then I visited my dad back and forth. And she has a really, uh, Lisa Brennan Jobs has a really poignant way of describing the feelings of someone growing up in that situation. And I guess we all have heard and know that sometimes Steve Jobs was not 100% kind. He has a lot of really stories about their relationship, and he was in some ways uh, very kind, but sometimes not kind. And so just going through um, her story and her life made me, it brought back memories of my own life and how I have mostly memories from my with my dad and my visits with my dad that were kind of spaced in the same same way. So that was nice to read about and realize uh, what a dad my what my dad was in that kind of situation. Um, and so that that's a personal note on that. But I also, uh, as a mother, really resonated with uh, this description that she has of Steve, um, and that he was very. He was very into his work, of course, as we all know, uh, and and he was sometimes somewhat distracted. She would des- she described it as he was so into his work that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, here that he was very distracted. And I think I'm I'm no Steve Jobs, of course, but I'm also very very engrossed in my work. And so sometimes when you're distracted with work, you can uh, not think. Uh, 100% clearly about the other relationships that you're having. And so it was a nice book to read so that I could just check myself and think, okay, I'm working really, really hard, but I need to make sure that I'm giving my kids their attention. I have two small children. And so that was really nice to read about just to make myself realize that even though I already knew it, but also think through it. And in a way that you're listening to someone talk about child's perspective up with someone who works so hard as a parent. Well, thank you for sharing with that, sharing that with us, Christy. Um, it's something I'll probably have to check out as well. And so if we bring it back to the science, just for our last question, when it comes to your favorite science aha moment or your most memorable moment in science, what, what was that and why did it inspire you the, the way that it did? Uh, so there is one moment that sticks out in my life uh, so much that it's not like an, a result or anything, but it was a state of mind. And so I did two postdocs, and my first postdoc was at Genentech. And in the situation, it, it wasn't exactly how, um, for various reasons, one reason or another, I, I decided I wanted to change my postdoc. And this was extremely devastating because I was on the track in which I wanted everything to happen perfectly. And I wanted uh, this academic career at the, at the end of my training. And so I felt this was uh, the end 
of my ability to get an academic job and have my own lab because I wasn't doing it right. I, uh, I had to change my postdoc. And so that was really devastating. But what happened soon after that was that uh, I thought that since I didn't have to do everything perfectly or worry about what people were thinking about me because I had messed it up already. I don't know why I thought that, but I thought, okay, if you have to change jobs, you've really messed everything up. But since I, I was free from worrying about what other people would think about me, um, I had just the most wonderful time enjoying the science. And so I began asking questions at these huge seminars we had at Genentech where these very famous scientists would come in and give talks. And I had no, no problem at that point raising my hand and asking a question because I was really just about the answer. Um, and, and the work that I did uh, past that and looking for another postdoc and I went out and I would give the talk and I was just enjoying the talk and thinking about this, the parts of the job that aren't someone judging you. And I will never forget that time because I enjoyed the job so much. And then, you know, you go on in your life and you get into things change. You forget how you felt then and then things get stressful again. But then I can always remember back to that and think that's what I really loved. I need to free myself from worrying about whether people think I'm a genius PI or not and just enjoy it. And so I think that's really a nice, uh, it was a nice uh, thing that happened to me in my life that's helped me since then. Yeah, you talked about, I think it was Miss Purnell in high school that, that lit the fire, right? And uh, I, you hear that a lot, is that science, what brings you into science is just it, it, it's the science. And then somehow for a lot of people, I think most people, it becomes a job and it becomes a career. And then it's not that anymore, that pure science that it was when you first got into it. So, I mean, I hope, I, I haven't found my way back completely yet, but I hope to follow your trail there and just get back to the, to the science and the joy of it. Although, as you said, life is complicated between the kids and the career and promotion and the grants and all that stuff. But if, if you can just find that little moment of Zen there and focus on the science, you can have your happiness. So thanks for that, Colonel. Christy. All the time, right? Yeah. If you even just have bursts of that throughout your life, then you're lucky. No, I mean, you know it as a parent and Arun soon to be a parent. I hope I'm not blowing up his spot there, but you... Oh uh... my gosh, are you kidding me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. That Thanks. is such wonderful news. Yes, oh. Thanks, Dale. I just told the world. <laughs> but there's not... Let's hope that there's not millions of listeners. Well, let's hope that there are, but there probably aren't. But Chrissy, I was just saying, Arun, you'll get it too. And, uh, and everybody has something like this in their life is that you get a little moment, a little glimpse um, where you're on vacation from the rest of your life. And it's the, those things, those pure things like science or, or parenthood or, or whatever it is. So um, congratulations on finding your way back to that, Christy. I'm still looking a little bit, uh, but also thanks for joining us. This has been a really fun episode. I really enjoyed your talk at the ISSCR. We actually uh, covered it in our video program there. So I invite the listeners to check that out too. And uh, thanks again. This has been really terrific. Great. It was wonderful talking. Thank you. 
That brings us to the end of this little mini interim episode about the ISSCR number two in a series of three. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including a summary of previous episodes, also links to all the interview notes from this one. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at stemcellpodcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests.